Right, good morning everyone. Turn with me to the book of Romans if you have a Bible. I think Dev is going to call up the text for us and we'll be in Romans chapter 5 and um, we'll be doing a little bit of work this morning. Um, Paul asked me to um, come and stand in, in in the Sabbath series and there's no ways either he or I is going to be able to do that get there this time of the year. So I'm going to to take you to a passage which is probably my favorite passage in the New Testament. And if you wake me up in the middle of the night, this is probably the passage that I would be able to recite. So I'm very excited about sharing that with you this morning, and I I hope um, I'm able to communicate something of that to you. Okay, so I'm going to read Romans chapter 5, and uh, and then we're going to pray, and then... um, And I try and take you through that text. So in chapter 5, after a very long argument, Paul begins with the word, therefore. And if you're not familiar with this incredible letter, um, you should make some work to get to the therefore. But the therefore begins with, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the, through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Gives you a thrill, right? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And what I've done for you at the end is I've I've just given you two parts of verses of the rest of the chapter to summarize for you what follows. So let's pray and then look at the text together. Our Father God, we come before the radical challenge of the gospel something quite familiar to us, yet so very unfamiliar, yet so strange and so uncanny and so much not of our own invention. And here we stand today, Lord, in the 21st century, and yet our faith today is rooted in these words, this apostolic testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact of Jesus who came and suffered and died and was raised from the dead and ascended into the heavens and rules even now even right now, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And I ask, Lord, as we read this text and as we think together, 
as we reason with ourselves and our hearts and our minds, that we come to a resolution, come to a conclusion, come to the definitive fact of our ultimate salvation in Christ. And I ask that for his sake. Amen. Okay, so if I were to... We're going to just keep the text up there. No fancy points, no title, nothing. Okay, no distractions. <laughs> just work on the last day of church together. Okay, if I were to take a, a survey amongst you this morning and ask you to identify the most deeply motivating sentence in all of the New Testament, many of you, I think, would come to Romans 5 verse 8. The fact that God has demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, if you don't have that as a fridge magnet, you know, you're behind. Uh, you need to get there. Um, it's a good choice. It's a very good choice. Tom Wright, a theologian, makes the following comment on this verse. He says, the entire narrative boils down to the single sentence. And those whose first thought it is to analyze that statement in terms of theological or literary derivations do more damage to it, even if their analysis is accurate, than to one who knows no Greek, but whose heart is strangely warmed at the hearing of it. So Paul's statement is so simple and unencumbered that it reaches us straight to the heart. It targets our hearts straight away and it gets hold of us, right? It grabs us. And, um, yeah, it's definitely one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture and perhaps even in all of religious literature. What other religion can compare to that? So... um, It came as something of a surprise to me that some years ago I discovered that verse 8 is actually only half of the truth. And to stop at verse 8 and not to go on to verses 9 and 11 is, you know, the equivalent of interrupting the Apostle Paul in mid-sentence, right? And not to hear the best part. So, So this phrase in verses 9 and 10, much more than, suggests exactly that, that there is better news, or rather that the good news that you heard is even better than you realize, much better, infinitely better, and the implications will hugely delight us. And let me also say this, that uh, the implication of verses 9 to 11 in terms of how we live our Christian lives is nothing short of radical. It's transformative. Okay, and it, uh, um, if you let it, <laughs> if you hear it, like Paul prayed this morning, it may well revolutionize your Christian life. Okay, so I hope I've enticed you just a little bit, and I don't want this to be too much of a rationalistic exercise, but bear with me. We have to follow the Apostle Paul in his argument, and... Um, And so hang in with me as we go through his argument. And I want to look at his argument under three headings. And no, they're not on the board, so you're going to have to listen, but they're easy, right? The first is the language of certainty, the language of certainty. The second is the logic of love, the logic of divine love. And the third is the life of hope. Language, logic, life. Okay, so let's start with a language of certainty. And I'm going to do, uh, I know many of you have been reading Romans with me, and I apologize in advance. You'll probably hear similar illustrations, but that is the way that it is. 
But we'll start then back in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith. Literally, in the original sense, we have gained access. The word is access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Now, there's enough in that sentence already for us to spend a few hours together. But I want you to note the very unusual thing in here, and that is the grammar, the grammar of having been justified, having been justified. Now, that might not strike you as unusual, but it's pretty radical. In the Jewish and the biblical worldview, justification, like here's a big theological word, like, okay, what does it mean? Let's have a test, right? Justification, right? In the biblical worldview, justification means more than just being forgiven, more than just being pardoned, but in actual fact to be deemed completely acceptable and the the recipient of every good gift of God or that God has to offer one of his very own. And to be justified, if you're a Jew, is an entirely future idea. Sorry, future is that way for you, right? It's an entirely future idea, okay? It is not a past or a present idea. It's part of that great package of the day of the Lord, that package of vindication. If you are amongst the righteous, and will you be? Well, then maybe you'll receive justification on the great day of judgment. That's the way the language works within the Old Testament worldview. And if we accept Paul's grammar here, we would have to come to understand something different. Because Paul seems to suggest that God's future verdict on those who have put their faith in Christ, that future judgment has been brought into the present. That your future judgment has been anticipated, right, and has become part of your present reality. Now, that does not strike us, I confess, in this room as astounding. But if you have a different worldview, it's utterly amazing. Utterly amazing. And just to show you that I'm not extrapolating too much just from that one word, note with me the rest of the language in verses 1 and 2. So here we go. The word shalom or peace. To have peace or shalom or harmony with God is linked to the very presence of God, but the future present right? All these things we're talking about, the Shabbat, about the Sabbath rest, has a future element to it. God comes back and he dwells in our midst, right? And Paul can say that piece of the future you can have now. Look at the language of access there, introduction in that in the, in the translation I gave you. But to have access by faith is temple language, previously used exclusively of the Levitical priesthood. Now, you too can have that exclusive privilege if you are in Jesus. To stand in grace is to find ourselves firmly positioned and securely located, right, in the place of God's favor, right? There's an immovability to that reality. And then to exalt, to take confidence or literally to boast in the hope of the glory of God is a sign of our future outcome. In Romans 8, Paul says, those he's justified, he's also glorified. Now, I need to show you these things because this is the apostolic testimony that we have to wrestle with in order to comprehend our present-day faith. Friends, there's no way around. (laughs) There's no escape 
You've got to wrestle with these things, right? You have to deal with the text. Come on. Right. <laughs> so the trajectory of the apostles' language really maps out a framework for us in our minds in which the favor of God's judgment right, upon those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus is no longer merely a future promise. Pie in the sky when you die, right? But an actual fact is a present, experienceable reality in the Christian life. The future has been brought into the present. Now, for some of you, that's a new idea, but it's not actually an entirely new idea. We've got lots of movies and films and, and narratives and stories where someone gets into a time machine and they travel back to the past. Why? Because of a terrible error that was made. And if they rectify that mistake, they can actually, in actual fact, impact the future and everything will change. You see that all the time. It's a brilliant narrative trick, right? It's a brilliant plot for a film or a movie and somehow we latch onto it and we like it. And Paul is, something, is saying something very Similar, And I think as Christians, we secretly delight in it, even though we don't know what we delight in. But he's saying, here is an opportunity for you today. Today, if you put your trust in Christ today, in Christ now, that will radically affect the future. Having put your faith in Christ today, a future verdict has been passed that can be presently known and experienced. Now, you implicitly know that, but Paul gives careful articulation to that idea. And in actual fact, this is how the Greek word hope, which is so prevalent in this passage, also works. Elpis or Elpida, and it comes up at least three times in this text. In English, we use the word hope like this. We say we hope for something, but we're not quite sure, so I'm going to be kind of optimistic, Right? about it. Like an exam. You know you didn't prepare very well. You didn't know, you don't know how it went. It's kind of edge, right, on the edge. It's, it's one way or another. And I said, hey, how did it go? And he said, well, look, I really hope that I'm going to pass, right? In other words, you're not sure. You're really, really, maybe mostly unsure, but you have a great sense of optimism that it's going to work out okay. That is not the way the Greek word hope works. Imagine you were a good student, right? And you did everything well. You have all your results. You submitted your thesis. You had a little chat with your professor, and the professor went to you. You know? And I bump into you in the passage, right? And <laughs> I say, you know, are you going to graduate this year? And you go like, well, I hope to. You know you're going to graduate, right? You know the outcome already. In fact, the prof slipped the mark to you. Like, I didn't show you that, right? Okay? but you have to wait for it. The outcome is certain, but you have to wait for it. Friends, that's what the Greek word hope means. Right? That's why that fabulous chapter in, in Hebrews 11 is all about the future certainty, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for, right? The evidence of things not seen everywhere you turn in the Bible. That's how the word hope functions. Okay, so Christian hope is very different from any other kind of hope, and it's underscored by this text. Okay, so you say, well, okay, JB, um, it's one thing for Paul to say all these things. You know, it's easy to say something, but prove it. Where's the argument? Where's the basis? You know, it's 
easy to use the language of, I mean, I know there's Christians, they love all the language of uncertainty, insurance, and trust. But where is the reality of it? Where's the proof of it? What argument can you provide? And this takes us to the logic that Paul employs in this passage from verse 6 to 8, the logic of divine love. So let me show you divine love. Let me show that to you. I'm just going to read these verses again. For while we were yet still helpless, or still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now that's the familiar part. A righteous man, of course, in this text, is, is really not the righteous in, in the full biblical sense of Romans, the righteous person in this particular verse is kind of the stickler for rules, you know, the kind of self-justifying person, the kind of person that when you want to go over the orange light stops, you know, that kind of person. Don't you hate? I wish we knew. I wish we had more of those, actually. Um, While a good man is someone we admire, a friend, or perhaps uh, someone very special, we... um, we lived in Komiki for many years, and around Komiki is a fabulous um, surf spot called Dunes. In 2003, when we were there, uh, there were two guys um, surfing, David Borman and Brent. I can't remember Brent's surname. Um, and David was attacked by a great white at Dunes. You've surfed Dunes, Ollie, yeah. And um, there's a big old shark that trawls that water, man. Yeah, it's a monster. And, um, and uh, David was attacked, and... Brent saw him being attacked. Instead of swimming away, hightailing it, he swam right towards um, David and he rescued him, uh, kicked the shark and they got him out the water. And why would he do that? Well, because David was a good man. David was his buddy. David was his mate. And he was willing to lay things on the line for him. And so Brent risks his life for him. David sadly died on the beach. He just bled out. There was The medical help was not... Soon enough. So it was a big loss for us in the village when this happened. It was a tragedy. But just a few years later, at the very same spot in Dunes, there were some screwdriver wielding criminals who attacked some innocent beach walkers down to Newark, fabulous beach spot. And they attacked these people with screwdrivers. And the police were notified, and they had these guys on quad bikes who came out of the bushes. And they apprehended the three guys. They got the two guys. And the third guy ran into the water exactly the same spot where David was attacked by the shark. And he ran into the water right at that spot. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) The jaws of justice, right? (laughs) No, the shark didn't get him, but he did run because he couldn't swim. And the guys didn't get to him quickly enough. And so here is the logic of the text. In this passage, we, that's us here, are described as ungodly, as sinners. Listen to it. Ungodly. Take it on, right? Ungodly, sinners, enemies, under wrath, powerless to save ourselves outside of Christ. Just like that man who ran into the water at dunes. And so, friends, this is the logic of divine love, because this is what divine love does. It demonstrates. It does the unthinkable, the unreasonable, the unimaginable, 
The Son of God gives his life in exchange for that wretched criminal, for you and me. Now, when you stand against that kind of truth, it leaves you breathless, right? It totally leaves you breathless. In fact, your, your, your mind cannot even comprehend it. We are left breathless by Romans 5 verse 8. But, friends, even so, we must read on. So read on with me. Verse 9. Much more than, much more than, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let me explain the logic to you. Verse 8 is only half the truth. It is incomplete without verses 9 and 10. And many translations fail to make this link, which is very obvious in the Greek, which is why I gave you this translation this morning, because it does it. Got it. Good. Okay. What kind, of arg- what kind of argument is this? <laughs> what kind of sentence is this? It's this kind of sentence. If this, then that. If I say to you, if this, and I drop the sentence off and I walk away, you'd be really angry with me. It's like telling a joke without the punchline, you know? It's like, come on, finish the thing, right? If this, then that. It's that kind of argument. If... Listen carefully, carefully. If the death of Christ brought us acquittal, right standing, and favor with God in the past through his blood while we were rat bags, right? Then surely the life of Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension, And his reign and rule will complete that salvation in the future from judgment now that we are his friends. Do you get it? It's not difficult, right? Imagine I was a mountain guide and I take someone up through some overhangs below on Table Mountain below the cable car. And I've done that, right? Imagine I take took a German guy up there once. And we go through the overhangs and we get to the cliff and I safely negotiate, guide this guy through this precarious overhang and we get to that last gentle slope. Then surely if I can do that, will I not be able to take him for a coffee at the restaurant? Of course. If God has already done the hard thing, the impossible thing in offering up his son in suffering and death, will he not also do the joyful, completing, final thing of giving life to all those who put their trust in Jesus. There is the logic. Okay. Now let's pause and reflect on that just for a moment. So Paul's language and his logic both then speak of what John Piper calls future grace and many others, a future certainty that's been brought into the present and I think that radically changes the way we live our Christian life. And, and so this is not just an intellectual exercise on my part towards you, but <laughs> this is really the fabric of the Christian life. I think so. You see, what we do is we tend to look at the cross 
in the past and we note our indebtedness to Christ because of our sinfulness. And then we wrestle in the present knowing that we can never repay Jesus for what he's done, but we keep on trying to. And we keep on trying to repay him. And inevitably, we fail. And instead of having any security, it heightens our sense of insecurity. And then somehow, on top of that, we hope in the English uncertain sense that maybe, perhaps, if I'm an optimist, God will take me to the end. Maybe my present performance will secure my future outcome. And so what we do is we, we, we entangle ourselves in all sorts of form of moralism and self-justification, and we entangle ourselves in the Christian life, right? And we denigrate what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, what we do is we derive our sense of assurance, not from what God has done for us in Christ, Jesus, but from our deep sense of debt, <laughs> and our efforts to repay him in the light of what he's done. That, does that sound familiar to you? Do you not sometimes say, think to yourself, I am most righteous when I feel most guilty? Isn't that a tragedy? When God has come to deliver us from condemnation? And so what theologians do is they call this the debtor's ethic. And John Piper says it like this. The debtor's ethic has a deadly appeal to Christians. It comes packaged as a gratitude ethic and says things like, God has done so much for you. Now what will you do for him? He's done so much for you. Surely, what are you going to do for him? He gave you his life. Now how much will you give him? Do you know that kind of preaching? The Christian life is then pictured as an effort to pay back the debt we owe to God Gratitude, says Piper, will therefore always degenerate into the debtor's ethic if it only looks back at past grace and it does not embrace future grace. Okay. Now, actually, this is quite a big theological deal. Right Now, suddenly, we're in a passage and there's some really important things happening here. Imagine I invite you to dinner because you're a good friend of mine and in honor of our friendship, I really want to give you a gift. And we lay out a fabulous meal for you. And as you walk out, you take out your wallet and say, look, how much can I pay you for that meal? What an insult. Right? I'm not inviting you again. <laughs> but that's exactly what we do with God. That's exactly how we act in pride and sort of a sense of like, let me repay you, Lord. Let me, let me do some act of self-justification. And that happens when we fail to read verse 9 to 11 with, with verses 6 to 8. So be careful <laughs> in your reading of the text. When we fail to appreciate the complete grace of God, his past, present, and future grace. Really, his past, future, and therefore present grace. In the words of the Apostle Paul, much more men, much more then. So here is the gospel in Romans chapter 5. And it proclaims this, that when we have put our faith in Jesus in the past and what he's done for us in the cross and we've been justified, that means because God has done that, he will also secure your future in Christ. You will be saved on the day of judgment and because of that, because the fact that the cross actually finds its completion in that future reality, that future grace, that gives us the power and the ability to live in the present day. That is our motivation. 
So no longer do we walk backwards. We turn to what God has given us in Christ. When I was a very young guy, <laughs> I dropped out of university and I hitchhiked through Europe and I ended up by God's goodness, really his providential kid. Um, by, uh, in France, I stayed with a, a South African missionary who happened to live there. And it was a beautiful place in Albertville. It was not far from Mont Blanc. No, Mont Blanc, the beautiful mountain. So every morning, um, this old, he was in his 70s, this old man would wake me up and, um, and I was this young guy and we'd go walk on the mountains. He was a strong guy, so we were up in the mountains early and I think the very first morning he got me up early out of bed and we were up in the mountains looking out across Mont Blanc. He said to me, JB, do you know what's happened to you now that you're a Christian? And of course, I mean, I'm like, no, <laughs> what do you say? No, I don't, tell me. He said, well, now that you put your faith in Jesus, what God has done for you in Christ is he takes you to the day of your death of the day of your death, rather, right? And he shows you a vision or a picture of the Father embracing you, taking you into his bosom and saying, well done, you are my son that I love. You belong to me now. And once he's given you that vision, he says, now go back and live your Christian life. Now, I... It was such an odd thing for someone to say to me. I was like, okay, I'll take that on. And, and it took me years and years and years to actually understand the depth of the theology in that very simple statement. So these are beautiful and glorious truths of the Christian faith. But now you say to me, what about life? What about my difficulties? What about my doubt? What about my struggles? What if my trials and tribulations crush me? What if I'm sitting here this morning in such a precarious place that I feel utterly crushed? Will the reality of my life or whatever before me, befalls me, rob me of my assurance? And so as a last point, let's turn back to the top end of the passage, back to verse 3, the life of hope, the life of living hope. In verse 3, Paul says, And not only this, we also exalt we, t- we, we boast, we rejoice, we take courage in our tribulations. Very awkward thing to say. Not because we suffer, that would be self-glorification. Not through sufferings, that would be a form of self-justification. But in the midst of suffering, we exult. And friends, here is the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith in our world, that Christians in following Jesus while walking a road of trial and suffering nonetheless gather strength and confidence. Look at verse 3 as it unfolds. We know the tribulation brings about perseverance. What a beautiful word that is, right? And perseverance, proven character, an even more beautiful word. What is more beautiful than proven character, right? And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. Can there be a more beautiful sentence than that even in the New Testament? And so affliction and tribulation is the great proving ground for the genuineness of our faith. I just It's remarkable this morning. Nobody knew what I was going to be speaking on this morning, yet all the songs had that same, struck that same chord this morning as we sang together. 
And so here's the witness of countless believers through the centuries who confirm and attest the faith, the, the fact that suffering even tribulations of, of magnitudes unimaginable, pain and persecution, cannot, nothing can crush the work of Christ within the human heart. Friends, not because of the human spirit, as all the contemporary literature tells us. The human spirit is indomitable, cannot be conquered. No, you know how very conquerable your human spirit can be, how easily it is toppled, how easily it is crushed. I just have one kid who have to go off the rails and I'm crushed, right? So not because of the human spirit, friends, but because of the spirit of God, the breath of Christ, our Savior, who not only died but rose from the grave. The resurrection is the most powerful force in the human world. And so Paul's argument for our present assurance is not just past demonstrated truth of the cross and not just future salvation, but the discernible, present, experienceable and experienced reality of the love of God, the witness, the presence of God's Spirit within us. What good would it be, friends, to have such amazing words in our religion, such as justification and glorification? That's what we have and not have the experience of that, not being able to taste that. What good is it to have great theology and no life? Now, we do not taste that all the time, do we? There are times when we do not taste it. There are times that our lips are unable to speak a single syllable of faith, not a single utterance of faith. And if you were not to guard your lips, you would say words of great blasphemy because that's where you are. Yet in your heart, a conviction remains and it burns and it keeps you and it holds you. And such may be the experience of many of you today. So the point is simple. For the Apostle Paul, Christian hope is discernibly true. It is a discernibly true hope as opposed to all other hopes because Christians are able to take confidence in God even in the midst of suffering. Our people die well. Right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You've heard these things over and over again. And friends, this is why the Apostle Paul is such an extraordinary fellow, such an extraordinary man, so easily hated, yet what a remarkable man. Let me conclude. So without a doubt, the Christian life of faith, or the life of faith in Christ, is the most exciting venture that any human being can embark upon. You know that. If you're on, on the journey, if you're a sojourner, if you're a wayfarer, if you're a warfarer, right? If you're on that road, there is no more exciting road to be on. Nothing matches the Christian life, right? Okay. And, um, and you may be very enthusiastic about that. When I hitchhiked through Europe, I had a huge sign on the back of my backpack in Coca-Cola letters, you know, um, Jesus adds life, right? That was the extent of my enthusiasm, other than the bumper stickers that covered all the rear window of my car, so I couldn't even see through the rear mirror anymore. 
But you know, enthusiasm, if it's only enthusiasm, wears off, right? And if it is indebtedness, maybe that's the energy, the engine that drives you. And if it's only indebtedness, your motivation will falter. It's not going to carry you to the end. What is that thing? What is it that the Christian has, the Christian who endures? Friends, the answer is verse 9. Much more then. Go home. Go shout it out. Right? Much more then. A hope that is certain, a hope that is sealed in our hearts by the Spirit of the living God. Charles Ringmer writes this. He is one of my professors. He said, The Christian who lives in hope, while not despising the past nor the present, looks to God who is always ahead of us. Love that statement. Christ is the leader who has gone before us, who has opened up the future, and it is his spirit who brings that future into our present. You're not going into the future. It's coming towards you. Therefore, the biblical writers can say that we have tasted, we have tasted of the powers of the age to come. And in Corinthians, we have already the deposit of the good things that are yet to come. This is the profound reality and the experience of the Christian faith. Now, I hope that's encouraging to you in a way and not discouraging. So let's pray and ask God for his help. Father God, thank you for this word we can turn to, this testimony that is born to us by your spirit. These words by this man, Paul, yet inspired by the spirit of God, lingers and carries and tarries and lands in our laps across these centuries and it breaks open and reveals mysteries of things we could not have imagined or brought up or, or fabricated. These incredible truths, and yet we know it and recognize it and acknowledge it and have the sense of the conviction of the truth of it. So we ask, Lord, for your grace today that we may know what you have done for us in Christ, that we may know the security you have for us, That when we falter in whatever way and we get disillusioned and we look around us and we're unhappy because we're going through a midlife crisis or our prayers aren't answered or our lives aren't working out the way we desire it to be, that nonetheless we know that everything is wrapped up perfectly in the perfect plan of God to us in Christ. And that that story is our greatest story. Lord, please help us really need your help. We need your spirit so much. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen.